people, the place, and the passion are what distinguish the Virginia wine and culinary community from others. It's my hope that through this podcast, we're able to share a little bit about each of these with you. They're a collection of stories from the people and places that inspire us, challenge us, and encourage us to be great. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Cellar Sessions podcast recorded in the cellar at the Williamsburg Winery. I am your host, Michael Kimball. And on today's episode, I have the one, the only, Shepherd Craig Rogers of Border Springs Farm. Thanks. I can't believe it's taken me 10 episodes to be down here. I know. It's amazing. And for those listening, this is in the cellar, right? Uh, fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> I love being in the cellar for so many reasons. But yeah, this is a real treat. <laughs> is it the wine, the cheese, or the barrels, or all the above? Uh, it's a whole experience here at the Williamsburg Winery. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I can't believe it's been 10 episodes either um, for, for before you've been on here. But full disclosure, Craig and I are good friends. Uh, in the intro to this podcast, we say... You know, this is a podcast about wine, food, hospitality, but it's also about the people that inspire us and support us. And I can't think of really anybody that has uh, supported me, um, inspired me, and encouraged me like the Shepherd Craig Rogers. So it's truly an honor to have you here on the show. And, you know, we'll get into some of the things we've done together over the last five years. But um, love you, brother. Thanks for being on here. Well, this is a real treat, and indeed, that's a two-way street. This is a relationship that just continues to grow, and, you know, I think it's all about all about passion, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot, but people who work hard have passion for what they do. It shows up in their craft, and, and hence, it's been a really great, great relationship. It really has, and, and you know, this when this episode airs, it'll be next week, but um, we're talking about things in real time. So last night you just did a you did a wine dinner with winemaker Matthew Mayer, and you just rolled down to the cellar straight from Virginia Beach. Oh my gosh, what a fabulous event at the Cavalier Hotel! Just one of the real special properties any place in in America. Um, great setting, nice intimate crowd, a uh, lot of a lot of interest. Um, it was one of those dinners where the food is fabulous. The wines showed so great. Um, if there was any argument, was was it the wine that made the food <laughs> so fabulous or was it the food that made the wine so fabulous? When that's the argument, it was a good night. It, it was a good night. And then there was even like a little after party after well, that. The crowd didn't want to disperse. When the shepherd and, and the winemaker are there, there's definitely always chance for an after party. So I'm glad that it, you guys delivered <laughs> uh, it was it, it, but it one, was a great night. One of the things I really appreciate appreciate about you, Craig, is the fact that you did just literally come right from Virginia Beach right into the right into the cellar. And two days ago, you were doing another lamb dinner uh, and wine event out at Early Mountain Vineyards. But I, whenever you know, whenever we have guests on, we you know this is a this is a winery, so we have wine available for the show. You know, once we have a couple of glasses of wine, it loosens us up on the episode, as you know from previous episodes. But even though you did a, a late night event, I had the bottle open, poured you a glass, and boom, you were sipping already. You were uh, ready to dive right back in. Uh, that's not hard <laughs> hard to do with with Virginia wine. Yeah, you know, I've been an ambassador for a long time. You know, I just it's been so nice to see and get to know the people behind the wine who are working so hard of being able to share the story. And you're right. Um, two nights ago at Early Mountain Vineyard, it was. Uh, the Psalm Camp. What a cool event. Uh, that the Virginia Wine Board had organized. 25 master psalms from across the country gathered and 
and tasted wine and visited vineyards uh, throughout central central Virginia, and I roasted a whole lamb for for them, and and even me who's been around Virginia wine for a while, I had some brand new Virginia wines at that finale dinner that just absolutely blew me away. There are there are a couple things I want to touch on on that, but one is that you said it on your Instagram. There are some days that are better than others at, in the office. That was a good day. That was a great day. <laughs> yes. But, and also about the new wines, something, you know, especially about Early Mountain, and then it's sort of something we've talked about in previous episodes that's happening in the wine industry here, is uh, we're kind of fearless. And winemakers are trying new, experimenting with new grapes, experimenting with new styles. And I know Early Mountain's rolled out a couple new, whether it was Pet Nat wines, and they have another sort of low lower alcohol, lighter bodied red that they just rolled out. So I'm, it's great to hear that, that you're noticing that there's just some new, cool, sort of fun wines rolling out and new wineries popping up all over the place. Yes. And the, and the quality is fabulous. So, you know, the, the new projects are fun. Like I have more cans of Williamsburg Rosé <laughs> in my refrigerator than I... That's your hot tub wine, right? That, oh my Everybody gosh. says that there's uh, a hot tub wine. That is the hot tub that wine. That is the hot tub hot tub wine. The most difficult thing to remember <laughs> about rosé in a can is that a can is half a bottle. Oh, yeah. We appreciate okay? We even put it on the label just to make sure everybody knew. Oh, my God. That goes down so easy <laughs> when you're sitting in a hot tub. Yep. <laughs> So awesome. You know, you know, Craig, we've been friends now for, for almost five years, and, and I'll share a little bit about how we met. You throw this pretty epic party that re- would require its own episode or even its own podcast series called Lambstock. So, you know, this is an hour episode, so we'll, we'll, we'll do like the Cliff Notes version. But you throw this epic party called Lambstock that's, um, you know, for chefs and people in the industry, and it's at your farm in Patrick Springs, Virginia. And everybody just comes and, and cooks and, and drinks, and it's a celebration of our craft. Um, it's not really about self-promotion more than it. It's just about – it's a celebration. And it's actually hard to articulate how special and impactful that event is, so I'm not even going to try. But just, you know, anybody that's been, been that's listening that is, or read about it in publications, it's just an incredible event. And you had gotten into cycling, right? And I had gotten into cycling right around the same time. And I knew I was going to Lambstock for the first time. And you inv- post- posted on your Instagram, anybody who wants to ride their bikes, bring your bikes. We're going to ride it this time on this time at Lambstock. And so I was like, okay, I'm bringing my bike. It was day one at Lambstock, and I was a rookie. And I didn't know like how to pace myself at Lambstock. All day from sunrise to sunset, there's food oh and gosh, drinks food. and music. All day. And so rookie and all the, the excitement took over me. And uh, let's just say that I, I took full advantage of all the opportunities that presented themselves that day. And, but I never lost sight of the fact that I wanted to ride my bike the next morning. But it's still a miracle today that I got up <laughs> the next morning at 7 a.m. and rode my bike trying oh. to chase you up the Blue Ridge Parkway. And had I not woken up that morning, I don't know if we ever would have met. I don't know if any of this ever would have happened, so I'm super grateful um, that for some miracle reason, the battery on my phone survived and that my alarm went off at 6.30, and we met and rode our bikes together. We've been riding our bikes together ever since. So, Well, serendipity is certainly, um, is certainly powerful and, yeah. and certainly grateful for, for that, but that was also 
kind of the start of a new era in our in our industry as well Absolutely. where where those in the food and beverage world had an awakening as to how we needed to have a healthier lifestyle and you knew me um or certainly saw me before I got into yeah. cycling and I was not the picture of health back then um I had really enjoyed this industry and I enjoyed it enjoyed it hard uh and had gained far more weight than I would ever be comfortable sharing uh but it's really been nice to see how family has become more important to those in the industry and how uh, folks in the industry have been working hard to create um, a more wholesome lifestyle because that was not always the case. Yeah, you can see it whether it's you know some of the documentaries that you have on Netflix where it sort of chronicles a chef's journey. A lot of them have found and sought out balance in their life. We're starting to see it here um, through our experience at the winery that you know uh, there's a renewed interest in in dining and drinking and but also yoga and cycling and running and and you know like wine life is about balance and i think yeah you you uh i can't say it enough and if there was more guests on this podcast that knew craig they would all say that you have been a instrumental part and in inspiring that process in the community through your very um well done social media uh you know chronicling of your of your journey and weight loss and and seeking balance and promoting it whether you're traveling to New York or traveling to uh, Greenville, South Carolina, or Charleston, you bring your bike, and you know, in the context of wine and food, you're you know, adding in the working out. So, you've been instrumental in it, and you know you have. You probably wouldn't say it, but you know you have. Well, <laughs> most importantly, it's just created incredible happiness and, and peace. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of us in this business, with you know, anyone who has a lot of passion oftentimes find themselves gravitating towards access and in mm-hmm. in the amount of work and time and effort they put into their craft and and sometimes you got to get slapped upside the head and say take it easy cuz in the long run it's not sustainable right and you- how how do we create a sustainable lifestyle in a business that's all about consumption exactly yeah and the late hours, long hours. Absolutely. So let's backtrack a little bit. You are, I introduced you as the shepherd, Craig Rogers. How does one become a shepherd? By mistake. <laughs> um, you, you know, uh, I've done lots of things in life and been very fortunate. And, uh, you know, I, I got into shepherding as um, a hobby. Uh, bought a farm. It was going to be my retirement farm. And, uh, three days after buying the farm, I bought six sheep and a trained border collie. And years ago, I saw a sheepdog trial um, on the campus of Virginia Tech. And it, it just captivated me. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And, uh, and, and so I was fortunate that in Lovingston, Virginia, the Tiger Woods of the sheepdog world um, lived then. And uh, I decided that I would take lessons and I guess no surprise to you became a bit obsessed with when you decide to do something you know that we're just gonna we're just going to immerse ourselves and make it happen and and so I you know one learned how to train and run a border collie and compete in sheepdog trials but the other thing I noticed was that the shepherd with the most sheep oftentimes won (laughs) Um, and I like winning I can't can't deny 
And so I became a sheep hoarder and had, you know, I traveled the country in an RV with my dogs competing in sheepdog trials. But every time I'd leave for a month to go out west, I was leaving 600 sheep behind for somebody else to care for. Um, and eventually got to the point where I'd accomplished all that I was going to be able to accomplish in the sheepdog world. But I really enjoyed the work of it. But my farm is in southwest Virginia. It's in a rural county. I mean, a county that doesn't even have a McDonald's. And for someone who's traveled the world and enjoyed fine food and was a foodie in the early 80s before there ever was such a word, um, it's not the most invigorating um, food and hospitality culture there. And so I just decided that I was going to start selling lamb and had also decided uh, that I was only going to sell to the very best. And so I, I sought out the chefs back then. This is now 12 or more years ago. The chefs that were really committed to uh, local food and sustainability and, and being able to create food in an earnest, earnest way. And uh, my first chef was six hours away, Brian Voltaggio in, in Frederick, Maryland. He had just opened Volt. Um, and not three months after he became my first customer, he was on season six of Top Chef. So that was before, or was it all at the same time, you said? Uh, so when you reached out to the Brian Voltaggio, this was pre- or post um, about Top Chef? Three, so he became a customer about three months before he was on Top Chef. Life is all about timing, isn't okay. it? Okay. <laughs> well, and the thing about Top Chef back then is it was like a little fraternity. And so he then introduced me to Richard Blaze, who was on season two down in Atlanta, which is another six-hour drive from my farm to the south. And Richard Blaze then introduced me to Sean Brock in Charleston, which is another six-hour drive from my farm. These are some names. Okay. And Sean Brock introduced me to the rest of the south. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just been an incredible ride. But, you know, back then that meant... I'm entering the back door of Volt and and McCrady's and and you know wow. eating in the in the in the kitchens and it was it was just so fabulous um, and was just what I needed after moving to this rural community in the foothills of the Blue Ridge and Patrick County uh, gave me an opportunity to to get out. Now, I've never worked harder in my life and did more manual labor than I did in about the first six years of being a, a shepherd. So, I mean, I earned that shepherd's crook. And, Absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's been an incredible, an incredible path, um, one that I could never plan. Yeah, like uh, many things. You just, it's just positioning yourself and... And working hard and putting yourselves in the positions to be successful. And then obviously timing. Yeah. Well, timing and good fortune and, you, you know, know and so I, many things. I hate the, I don't really like the word luck. I think things, it's all maybe more about, um, you know, putting yourself in the right position, like I mentioned before, and working hard. And then obviously good fortune comes 
your way, but it's typically earned. Well, indeed. And, and again, there was some good fortune. Mm-hmm. I came around at, at an important time. There were a number of smaller farmers who had tried to uh, make a living in this locavore um, environment. And almost all of them failed within 10 years. And so I had the benefit of watching these people who, you know, there was a time 10 years ago where people thought farmers were going to be the next superstars like chefs are today. Yeah, chefs and psalms, yeah. That's just never going to happen. But nonetheless, you know, the chefs were really passionate about their farmers. And then you see these people who were supposed to be the stars and their businesses fail and you you gave me the opportunity to look and say, why is this? Yep. Um, and, and if it unfortunately wasn't for all of them, you know, trying so hard and none of them failed because of the quality of their product. Hmm. Um, they failed because of some really fundamental business elements that fortunately I was able to recognize and, and position myself to do things a little differently um, and then just hope and pray that it was going to work Um, because some of these things are out of your control like finding a distributor for for me I you know you can knock on all the doors you want it's not about that you know you have to have the you have to have so many different things and you had to have done so many things to position yourself and then you just hope and I was just exceptionally fortunate yeah but that that certainly doesn't sound like luck that just sounds like a very well thought out plan uh that you double down on with effort and quality product and passion and you made it work and you know we talked about it that nobody failed because of the product but i want to talk about your product because i mean there's so many places to go with this lamb what does it mean here in the U.S. versus elsewhere, like what's the status of the lamb, lamb market, and lamb industry, and the culinary world, and I'd like to get into that. But let's talk about what makes Border Springs lamb so special, because you know I know, and now that I'm talking about it, I'm like super hungry. We're recording this at lunchtime, and this cheese is just not going <laughs> to cut it. But I mean, we've done so many dinners together where we've compared your lamb, like the same cut of your lamb versus another, whether it be from another state. Um, or another country, and it's undeniable, uh, your lamb. It's, and it's so easily um, recognizable, which is, in this world, one of the things that is so necessary is being instantly recognizable. Well, and, and I appreciate that. And first of all, there is a lot of good lamb in, in, in the country. And so it's not that my lamb is particularly unique, but... But you do have to do it right. And, you, and, and I think what made it right for me was um, that I, because of my past and, and traveling the world and having a culinary interest, um, I was able to have conversations with chefs. And because I was trying to create an enterprise, the most important thing is to listen to the customer. Chefs are not the easiest customers. <laughs> All right. They are very, very discerning. And when I first started, I can remember I only sold whole lambs. And that was a time in which chefs were excited about doing butchering in-house. And then they realized that it's expensive and 
you have to train somebody and the moment you train somebody they would leave to go to another restaurant and you'd have to train somebody else and you you know I finally had to get into selling parts and figuring out how to do that so I didn't have waste of of animals a, a long process but you had to listen to the customer and the chefs knew when things would change on my farm if I changed the breeding they would go this doesn't taste quite the same and I want what you used to have um, or if I changed the feeding uh, they would let me know you know the fat used to be a little bit sweeter than it is now how do we get what you used to have and there was no way of cutting corners and that's a difference between farming for the commodity market where you drop your animals off at a livestock auction and nobody ever knows from that point on where that animal came from. There's no farmer pride in that animal outside of receiving the check, you know. And, and there might be a little competition amongst farmers as to, you know, who got the better price that day at a livestock auction. But your name's not on it, right? So we think about all the things we do in manufacturing in America to create pride, and it's all about branding. You put your name on it, mm-hmm. right? You buy a shirt now, you have the name of somebody who inspected it or whatever to make sure that there's personal pride. Uh, it's hard to create personal pride in commodity. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned farming. that about the wine label here. You're like, you put that on the label? Yeah, we like a couple years ago, we went to like, this full disclosure label concept, grape sourcing, Flavor profile, blend, all that stuff. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right about that. Yeah, so, so now I had a brand, and it was important for the chefs to love it. And if you're selling to, to chefs, you know, there's no way to advertise. You know, you're not buying billboards or radio spots or any. It's word of mouth. Right. Right. You have to have a, a chef who's passionate about it who's going to tell their friends. It's it's the One only of the way. most important and time tested forms of marketing there is. So again, some of the good fortune. I had a farm in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Southwest Virginia, some of the most fertile, you know, farmland that we that we have. Um, I also realized that if you're going to create sweet lamb and particularly a sweet lamb fat, which is, I think, what my lamb is particularly known for, um, you're going to have to feed them something sweet. And and if you're going to be grass-fed, it meant doing something different with the grass. In the southeastern United States, almost every pasture uh, is is fescue, which is a drought-resistant grass. It's called Kentucky 31. It was invented to be able to create forage uh, in the southeast under harsh conditions. The problem is, it's not very nutritious. The other thing that some many people um, don't realize is that the East Coast almost never finishes animals Hmm. for consumption. Um, A lot of cattle is raised on the East Coast, but only to about 500 pounds. It's called a cow-calf operation. And you raise them to 500 pounds, sell them at a livestock auction, and then they go to where the food is in America, out to the amber ways of grain. They go out west, and that's where they're finished to become the meat that you buy in a grocery store. 
you don't buy meat in a grocery store that actually comes and is finished in the eastern United States. Since the invention of the Intercontinental Railroad, all of the meat went out west because that's where the food is. If you fly over the East Coast now and you look at a farm, they look like little postage stamps carved out of a forest, right? The East Coast is forest. You go out west and you will see the amber waves of grain as far as you can possibly see. That's indigenous grass. So there's nothing sustainable about a pasture in the eastern U.S. If you don't do anything to that pasture, it becomes a forest. So you now have to figure out what is it that you want that piece of land to do to create something that a chef wants. And for me, that meant planting and overseeding my pastures with high sugar grasses. And it actually makes a difference. You know, last night we had uh, a wonderful dinner at the Cavalier Hotel in Virginia Beach, one of the special properties in all of Virginia. Uh, great chef, uh, Kevin, uh, did a number of dishes that were delightful. But the rack of lamb has um, just the slightest little bit of fat on it. And I, you know, I, I, every time I have my own lamb, I'm still impressed by it um, because the fat is like the like the softest mm. most subtle sweet ribeye fat that you've ever had yeah it's almost like it adds that it's like when you put butter on something it has that sort of like caressing soft silky mm. yeah and so many people unfortunately in america have had bad lamb yeah right or lamb that that was you know, my experience with with it yeah, they like said, where it would smell up your kitchen. Exactly. All right, and 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 when you would taste the fat, it would be gamey mm-hmm. or astringent, right? It would almost want to make your mouth pucker or have a texture that you felt like you needed to rake your tongue yep. when you were you were done, instead of that nice, soft, subtle fat that you have in a ribeye steak. And that's what we now, you know, strive for in in the lamb. And it makes a difference. Uh, you know, one of the things that's most fun for me doing food festivals is, you know, oftentimes we'll roast a whole whole lamb and slice it off the carcass. And there'll be people who will say that they hate lamb, but they'll give it a try and they go, oh, my God, that's not like the lamb I ever had. Uh, exactly. And the reality is it's not like the lamb that they've ever, ever had. And and every country typically has a different predominant breed and certainly different feeding protocols. And, and not all lamb tastes the same. Uh, and it's not to say that everyone is going to like my lamb best. There are people that are accustomed to that strong gaminess that they would probably try my lamb and they go, that doesn't even taste like lamb because they're, you know, been conditioned that they like that strong it's the same thing in our i mean it's, there's so many other people people that are listening in their industry there's probably something in their industry that has that sort of long tradition of uh, you know where people expect a certain thing to be a certain way uh like for us it's chardonnay right if you give somebody a stainless steel chardonnay you know where we in the wine industry are like oh we love that crisp acidity those bright lemon and apple flavors it's like great with seafood but there's somebody that may have their entire lives consumed that buttery rich right completely over oaked butter bomb but there's absolutely nothing wrong with that 
But if that's a stereotype that we are trying to sort of fight back against, there's a market for it, and people, some people expect it to be like that. So that's, it's completely right. relatable. Kind of drink what you like. Yep. Eat the lamb that you like. Absolutely. And I provide an alternative. Should we talk about mint jelly? Or we... Oh, my God, mint jelly. <laughs> so here's, here's the problem with mint jelly. I, I, I actually like mint jelly, okay? <laughs> Except it's a personal thing. The reason for mint jelly was to cover up the gaminess yeah. of lamb, right? It's, Before this episode, I was like, I, I was like should I bring it up? And I was like, ah, Craig and I are friends. Um, so uh, it, it always makes me cringe a little bit when somebody begins serving mint jelly with my lamb. Although it goes okay with lamb. Sure. It really does, even my lamb. But I just know the history that the purpose was to mask the meat, right? It's kind of like jerk with goat, right? Spice it up so you don't even know what the goat tastes <laughs> yeah, like. You're numb. <laughs> Lord knows who wants to eat goat. Um <laughs> But, but, you know, a nice, subtle, sweet lamb doesn't really need it. Uh, and so even when I cook it, pri- I primarily am a olive oil, salt, and pepper guy. And I let the lamb do its own thing. You know, nice. that's, that's, it's so funny because there's not, not every, there's not a direct correlation to everything we're talking about between, you know, lamb and, and wine. But there's this, there's this movement now with wine, this sort of natural wine movement where you sort of like let it be and like less oak, especially in terms of red wines, where people just want the what the grapes taste like from the land in which they come from. And it's neat that that's how you prefer your lamb. And, you know, I'm sure there's a movement towards just what does this product taste like in isolation. And it's sort of neat because that sort of um, sort of uh, natural wine movement is something that's really you know prominent right now well i think the other thing that's made our association so vibrant as well and i know that this seems like um it's a little kitschy but there is something to the adage what grows together goes together and here i pour you something that we grew here and and here we are in in virginia these Virginia Reds, um, and you're pouring uh, Petit Verdot. Yeah, which this is, is our new Wessex 100 Petit Verdot, which is uh, grown here. Which uh, Petit Verdot is just one of my favorite pairings with, with lamb. Um, although Petit Verdot, uh, as a grape, could be pretty big, it's subtle enough to let a subtle lamb shine through. You're not, you're not masking it, right? No, and it's got that sweet sort of blackberry fruit too that plays incredibly well and i joked in the intro about how we met i mean that's 100 percent the truth like i met craig rogers whether we wouldn't have met otherwise yeah but we truly met on a bike when i had the worst hangover of my life but one of the things that happened as a result of getting to know each other was uh, realizing this beautiful synergy that existed between your lamb and this wine that we're drinking here today, which is the Wessex 100 Petit Verdot, which we brought to that event and we had with the lamb at Lambstock and have brought it around the, you know, the eastern U.S., uh, whether it's at Euphoria Greenville or at the James Beard House in New York City. Uh, it just has a really beautiful relationship, and I'm sure you've experienced that at other wineries, whether it's uh, – I saw you had it with the Early Mountain Rosé. Oh, well – of course, the early mountain rosé was my... Hydration? Yes, for six hours of roasting a lamb over an open fire. Yeah, yeah, this is this is a tough life, my yeah. friend. Tough life. 
So you talked about, um, you know, how you prefer your lamb, which is sort of, you know, I'm sure you 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 had talked about last night. I said, what's the most rec- uh, the the course that stood out to you about last night dinners? The course that stood out to you from last night's oh dinner, and you mentioned the lamb bolognese. Lamb bolognese. Oh my gosh, with the G- Gabriel Archer yeah. Reserve, mm. that pairing. You know, I, I, in fact, I had a conversation with Matthew Meyer, your your winemaker, uh, this this morning about that. You know, when you when you have a good pairing, do you want it to go unnoticed, or should it be a wow moment? I, I but I can tell you, last night, first of all, that dish of lamb bolognese with ricotta mm-hmm. gnocchi was divine. Just divine. It truly was one of the best dishes I've had all year. Mm. Um, but that pairing was 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 a wow yeah. moment. It just it 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 just went bang. Yeah, because there's a lot of like conversation, you know, about wine and food, and you know, some of it's like, oh, is this contrived? But when it is right, they both lift each other up, yes. and they bring the best out in each other. And we've all had those moments where you're at a dinner and you're like, eh, this is, you know, doesn't really do much. But then when it happens, it's like, whoa, I get why Psalms have jobs yes. and why they say wine and food pair well so, so well together. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, that, so that was, that was a, a, a special one. Aside from the fact that we had candied lamb bacon mm. on ice cream and yeah, it was, it was, it was just, just special. So we talked about it and... I want to get into it a little bit more. Like, let's talk about the the lamb, uh, the state of lamb here in the U.S. and in the culinary industry. What's you know, if you ask if you ask an American, think of the first red meat. What's the first red meat you think of? They would probably say beef. Like, where does it rank? What's happening with it? Is it in, is it in style? Is it going out of style? Like, where is it? Well, unfortunately, I think you know lamb has you know always lagged behind. Um, every other protein in the United States. Even though lamb is the most consumed protein throughout the world, it's not here. I love that fact. Um, And probably lots of reasons. You know, shoot, we've had culture wars here in the United States. The, you know, the cattle sheep wars of, of the West at, you know, basically around Civil War times you know, where you had battles. Um, and, and the only way that that ended was when some of those cowboys realized they could make more money with sheep than they could with cattle. But, (laughs) but it was, it was a culture war and, and we, we aren't able to produce enough of it in the United States. So a lot of it is imported. Um, that creates a lot of competition, uh, particularly for price. Uh, New Zealand is a big New Zealand big and one, Australia right? yep. um, sell so much more lamb in the United States than American lamb. Um, and lamb is more expensive, um, unfortunately. So for many, lamb has become, you know, the anniversary or special occasion meat in a, in a restaurant. And somehow, and this makes no sense to me, and I don't know where this started from, it's amazing to me when I'm at a food festival how many people will tell me they don't know how to cook lamb. And to me, lamb is the easiest thing to cook. All you need is salt, pepper, olive oil, and a meat thermometer. 
the only rule for cooking lamb is don't overcook it. You cook it to 130 degrees, it will be perfect every time. And because lamb has more flavor than beef and certainly pork, it, it just it it speaks for itself. You know, all you need is some Malden salt. And if you don't know what Malden salt is, go to Amazon.com right now and buy some. Right, Spell it out. M-A-L-D-O-N. It's a big crystal salt that's mm. just perfect for, for meat. Anytime you have a slice of meat, you, you sprinkle a little bit of that on it and... It's like pop rocks for adults. It is, it is so, so fabulous. But that's all you have to, have to do. But there's an intimidation to it. And, and probably some of the intimidation is the price. You know, one of the reasons why uh, New Zealand lamb sells so well here in the United States, it's sold at Costco, is because the rack is so tiny that you can buy it for $20. Well, the racks I have are much larger. It's actually a substantial meal. But that rack, because it is larger, is going to cost you three times as much. Yep. And, and Remember that time we did the dinner and we the, the course was, you didn't know it was coming, but the course was literally olive oil, salt and pepper uh, prepared lamb rack. And it was a New Zealand lamb pop is what we called it. But, you know, the yes. rack. Uh, with yours, like the two side by side on the plate, I have the. I'll probably post that picture with the episode when we when we when we publish it, just so you could see the difference between the two. Yes, it was mind blowing, and we it was a it was an influencer or you know media dinner, and everybody was like, because <gasps> you hear people say that about your lamb, and you hear what people say about New Zealand lamb, but when you put the two side by side on a plate, it's like wow. Well, and more importantly, I always get nervous. As many times as this has happened, I still get nervous when there's the blind taste oh, test, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And I'm so sure I'm sure there. every winemaker <laughs> does the same thing. Yeah. But yes, you put my lamb up against you know a New Zealand lamb chop, and you go, oh my god, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Yeah, um, we were. I mean, we were like, we were confident that the conclusion would be, wow, the Border Springs one is has more flavor. The fat is incredible. But, like, even if you preferred one over the other, the, it was undeniable the physical difference yeah. between the two. And I thought that was really a, a great takeaway. But, yeah, you crushed it. Yeah, well, and that's, <laughs> you know, and that's about the, the breed and, and so on, right? Animals yeah. are designed through evolution to be of a certain, certain size. And, and you kind of decide what, what you want yeah. um, and, or what the chefs want. Because the lamb I have now is not the same lamb I started with. The lamb I had back then was much smaller. But the chefs were the ones who demanded um, a larger eye on the loin and on the rack. Um, and so, I, you know, it's, it but, forced me to, to uh, investigate different breeds and, and how to go about creating just that perfect size so that everybody could make money on it. And that's, I wanted to talk about that. It's really interesting because you mentioned like you listened to the chefs and you sought out, you know, advice and, and, and did recon with, with the chef community. They're obviously doing what they do and getting support from customers. Like they have to make sure that what they're serving brings people in and brings people back and appeases their customers. So they obviously wanted it a certain way because the customers wanted it that way. 
why is that? Why did they want it that way? Was it because they wanted it to resemble steak, or was it that they, you know, was they wanted something that was so opposite of what the stereotype of lamb was? Was that sort of mutton like experience? Um, I think my early lamb had a flavor profile that indeed differentiated it from Australian and New Zealand. Um, then it becomes kind of the economics, right? There's certain expectations when you go out to dinner as to how much protein is on a, on a plate. Um, lamb portions are probably going to be a little bit smaller than beef portions, right? You're not going to go to a restaurant and find a, a 24, the equivalent of a 24-ounce you know, tomahawk r- ribeye um, any anywhere, right? There's nothing particularly grotesque about. We're 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 a more refined <laughs> um, farmer than than some of those some of those beef guys, um, but so it's a little bit more refined. But nonetheless, they know what they need to put on a plate and how much money they believe that they can demand for it. And you know, and and every chef is a little different. It's not to say that everybody has exactly the same requirements. Um, And we try to do our best to accommodate as many as you can. But one of the things you learn very quickly, same, I'm sure, with wine, you don't try to please everybody. You can't. Because then you end up pleasing no one. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, fortunately, I have some mentors. You know, if Sean Brock told me what he wanted, that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Because if it's good enough for Sean Brock... It should be good enough for most everybody else. And if not, you know, then their economics are different, and, and I can appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so, you yeah, know, I mean, you figure out who you trust. Who you trust, absolutely. And that's the same thing, you know, talk, bring the wine back into the conversation a little bit. We talked about, and we, we, we have to explain this every day, and I recognize it. We put Wessex 100 on our labels. What is Wessex 100, Right. For most wineries, you go there, and if the wine is grown on their estate, it says on the label, estate grown, right? But we cannot do that here at Williamsburg Winery because where our winery is is not a part of an AVA, an American Viticultural Area. So, you know, Charlottesville or Monticello or, you know, Napa or Sonoma or Walla Walla. These are recognized areas. Even the Eastern Shore has one. They're recognized as having unique grape growing uh, properties. And so in order for us to communicate, which we, like I said, when I became the marketing director here, you maybe heard on previous episodes, I, I said, had this, you know, yes policy where I kind of like listened to everybody, brought people in, all advertisers, other, you know, people in my positions with other wineries and in, in, in our industry. And one of the things I kept hearing from people in our industry, whether it's from the consumer side or from the marketing, you know, branding side was that people cared about to know where their wine came from. You mentioned it before about chefs wanting to promote where their food comes from. Right. Well, how are we going to do that? Because we can't put a steak grown and we have this amazing vineyard here and we need to show that we have a vineyard and that we grow world-class wine here in Williamsburg. So what we decided to do was put West 600 on the label. Because Wessex 100 is the name of our farm, but we don't say Wessex 100 farm or, you know, a state grown, but we hope that through learning about what Wessex 100 is and seeing it on the label, 
that the customer will know that that wine is 100% estate grown. After all these years, you have just taught me something new. <laughs> I didn't realize See? that there was not an AVA here yep. and that that was the reason. Yeah, absolutely. And so communicating the grape sourcing is 100% one of the most important things that we as a marketing team um, brought to uh, the wine experience here was revealing our sourcing. And it's been important. It's been incredible to see it from the consumer side and how much they've appreciated it. And then we're drinking two Petit Verdots, one from a Virginia Appalachian and one uh, grown 100% here. And it's really neat to show off the diversity of the, of the terroir here in, in the Commonwealth. But I, um, you know, I brought that up, one, to share with you also that soon enough, we will have an AVA. We've applied for one, the Virginia Peninsula AVA, and the process was long and arduous and took almost about three years, but hopefully in the next year to 18 months, we'll have the Virginia Peninsula AVA and we'll be able to put a state grown on our labels. And when you're driving up or down or across 64, you'll see the welcome to the Virginia Peninsula AVA. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, I wanted to share that with you because you talked about you know, listening to the chefs and listening to the customers and, and, um, thought it was a good opportunity to talk about that wine. Well, another thing that, um, that you brought up that I think is important and kind of a corollary between Mm -hmm. my farm and in essence, your farm, your, 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 your farm. Exactly. Is, um, how important it was for me to bring chefs to the farm. Right to actually see how it's done, and and so I arrived uh, yesterday here and saw your brand new pavilion, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine a better way to create some loyalty in your consumers than spending a few hours sipping your wines, overlooking your vineyard, and actually seeing your farm. Yep. Right. Aside from the fact that it's just aesthetically beautiful. It does give you a sense of the work behind the wine as as well. And, Absolutely. And that was important to me to yeah. as much as I my farm is in the middle of nowhere. It's in the part of Appalachian people make jokes about and oftentimes for good reason. Yeah. Um but to bring chefs from across the country to my little farm in Patrick Springs, Virginia was probably the most important thing to creating some some loyalty and some understanding about what does it mean to be to be a modern day shepherd and you know how do you raise the lamb and what kind of work does it take and what does the land look like yeah. and more importantly what does the grass look like? And I found one of the best ways for them to understand Sleeping the grass is they camp out in a sheep pasture <laughs> for three three nights. They get up close and personal. Yeah, they do. No, it's so important. And one of the things I appreciate about you always, but especially on this podcast, is you've talked about some of the realities. You know, lamb is an animal, right? We see it on the grocery store shelves or we get it on this beautiful plate but there is a human being and human beings and people that brought you this beautiful animal and for us you see the bottle but there's you know we got six people out in the vineyard right now working pulling you know leaves and you know digging ditches and and you know people building tanks and it's a it takes a village and it's a process and it's an agricultural product and i think one of the things about this podcast that you know i enjoy so much is hearing the stories uh about the people that uh 
bring these beautiful consumable products to the table and providing some context because we live in a commodity world too, right? Where things just are yeah. instant. Right. And so our product is not that, both so, the wine and the food. So imagine how grateful I am for Jared, who's managing my my farm right now and mm-hmm. is on a bush hog while I have a fabulous charcuterie plate and yeah. sipping on petite Verdot <laughs> with you, right? That's a you had a pretty good gig, but no, you work hard, <laughs> and, and both gig. are really important because you've got to get you've got to get word out. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming in here and, and sharing that story. And I think you know as we continue this podcast and we continue. Um, these episodes, you know, we would appreciate it if you would follow up with comments. Um, if you hear an episode and you want to ask, you know, myself or our guests a question, you know, Craig, of, of all the people we've brought on this podcast, I can think of maybe one, no offense, who's more, you know, sort of active, but that's saying something. You're, you're pretty active on social and, you know, where can people find you? Well, at Border Springs yeah. on just about every social media, media platform or craig.rogers.shepherd on Facebook. Um, but yeah, I just love telling the story. And yeah. I hope what you see is um, just my love for what Virginia has, yeah. right? For, whether it's agriculture or wine. And yeah. I am such a huge supporter of of Virginia wine, although yeah. I have to admit, last night at the Cavalier, they have a distillery in the basement. Isn't that awesome? Oh my gosh! Yeah. And, and that rye and and incredible. gin. Yep. Um. So yeah, uh, yeah one of it, the reasons why I don't make any money is every time I go to a vineyard, I leave with two cases <laughs> and went down to the you Cavalier. Took a, I took a pre-order from you this morning on the way down to the cellar. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. So please, you know, we uh, we love it when you comment. We love it when you ask questions. And, and so if you want to reach out about Craig or inquire about getting his lamb or, or just asking him a question, please do. Um, for those that are listening and, and they want to, uh, maybe they haven't had a lot of lamb or maybe they've had lamb in a way that we've talked about it where it was like, you know, had that funky, muttony smell and they haven't had a pleasant experience and they want to start uh, exploring it. How, how would how would people do it? Like farmer's market, grocery store? Like can you give some people some advice on um, besides obviously ordering from your distributor, ordering uh, online at borderspringsfarm.com? Well, I can. And, and I think to some degree with lamb, you almost have to take um, the same approach that you do with wine. If you want to see the difference, you know, go to Costco and buy a little bit of New Zealand lamb. Um most grocery stores are probably going to have some Australian lamb, particularly loin chops, mm-hmm. right? Which are so easy to cook. Just sear them on both sides and let them rest, and it's probably going to be perfect. If they're an inch thick, you don't you don't even have to do do a lot of work. Great on the grill. Just don't overcook the lamb. And then try Colorado lamb as well. Um, it's going to be cheaper, uh, generally. Um, and then come here, Cavalier Hotel, go to a, you know, a few others, find Border Springs lamb and, um, uh, not embarrassed to tell you, it's probably going to be the most expensive lamb you're going to find. Um, <laughs> my farm is just a little bit tinier than the continent of New Zealand and, and Australia. Just a tad, right? Um, and so little different economy of scale, Yep. but, uh, but it will be different, and it's kind of like saying that you like red wine. Uh, probably not. Right. You you probably like 
big, bold Cabernet Sauvignons more than, than how, you do a Chianti. And how do you know? By right. trying. Exactly. Yep. So find what you like. I'm pretty confident that many are going to appreciate a good Virginia lamb that's raised on sweet grasses and has a fat that is just so pleasant. Um, but, like, drink what you like. Yep. Eat what you like. Yeah, I mean, I learned about wine by saying my favorite one. People would ask me, like, what's your favorite bottle? And I would say whatever's open. Right? Because I was just into trying it. Yes. Yeah. And, and also exploring the different cuts of lamb. Like, you may not prefer ground or, you, you know, you may like, hey, you may even like lamb testicles, which I've had oh, at the farm. And here. We served, we served lamb testicles at that uh, Virginia history dinner here. Yes. Oh, those, Mind-blowing. those were fabulous. Yeah, marinated in a little spicy chili and mm. and breaded. Oh, that was like it was like Nashville hot chicken. It was oh, fabulous. It's exactly and, what it was like. And and two days ago, uh, just for the chefs, uh, when I have a whole lamb uh, slaughter, I always keep the offal, the organs, and so in the cavity was the liver and kidneys and heart. But I marinated the heart there on on the spot and mm. uh and just took a couple of cast iron skillets laid it on the hot charcoals that i was using for roasting the whole lamb and just seared the heart and served that to the chefs mm. and it's the most it's really my favorite part it tastes like the richest ribeye steak you've ever had um there is no iron or mineral flavor to it like organ there's no way that anyone would ever know that it was a piece of organ meat you think it's just the richest ribeye steak you've ever had did i have lamb heart tartare before yes you? indeed yeah yes. almost always at lamb stock somebody somebody makes lamb heart tartare I well was... i think we also had it at the james beard house i yes. guess for the past Past uh, eight or nine years, we've yep. done a dinner at the James Beard House called Shepherd and Friends, and which is what last week. Gosh, I guess it, it was. was last week. Yeah, wow, I mean, that was so much fun. I have been. On I tour. mean, I was talking about tartare, and we're talking about you know organ meat, and you know some people might be a little put off by that, but I think one of the the best ways to experience your lamb to really taste the flavor and the difference is uh, having lamb tartare. We serve it at the Cafe Provençal almost year round. Yeah. It's divine. Yeah. Or a lamb carpaccio. Oh, yeah. We should put a warning at the beginning of this episode that it could cause severe hunger and, and to have food nearby. And, and, a, and a nice, easy way to get accustomed to lamb is with a good old lamb burger. Yep. Um, almost always, when a restaurant puts a lamb burger on the menu, it becomes a signature yep. dish. It's, a, it's amazing. Yep. Absolutely. So we have another first on today's episode. We have our first shepherd and our first live in studio guest question. And it's not just any guest. It's, it's Jeff, who you all know uh, works so hard behind the scenes to uh, edit these uh, episodes. And he's also here for every episode listening, making sure that the, you know, somebody's not tapping a pen on the table and making sure it all sounds good. But it's good to know he's actually listening, too, because he has a question and he wanted to, to ask the shepherd a question. I do. So... Craig, I was curious how much land it takes to raise the animals, like for one acre. How many, how many animals can be raised on that one acre? 
Yeah, that's actually a great question. And it really helps um, all of the consumers when you're driving by a farm or at a farmer's market to really appreciate what type of a farmer are they. So in the sheep world, in the number of animals you can raise on an acre depends upon what part of the country you're in. But where we are in the East Coast, the conventional wisdom is that you can put four ewes, the mothers, and their babies on one acre of land. Now, several years ago, Ohio State did a study on how many head of various types of livestock you need in order to make a median income of the United States, which then was $40,000 a year. And for sheep, you had to have 1,800 ewes, mothers, right? So you had to have a farm with close to 500 acres of pasture land to make $40,000. Wow. Now, when you go to a farmer's market, you ask somebody who's selling lamb how many ewes they have, not sheep, because then they'll count everything, including the babies that, quite frankly, don't hang around for very long. But the mothers are the ones that are consistent. So that's how we, we measure the size of a flock. And if they're telling you that they have 20, 50, 200, uh, that's a hobby farmer. And it's why, and, I, and I'll share something um, perhaps a little controversial. It's why my feeling is the worst place in America to buy meat is a local farmer's market on the East Coast. Because there hasn't been a history of learning how to finish animals, um, how to add the marbling and the fat and to finish their life to be um, to be of high quali- uh, culinary quality. And if you have a number of sheep that's in the, the tens or even a couple hundred, then you're not trying to make a living at it. Um, it really is kind of a hobby. And one of the worst things that happened on the East Coast was the grass-fed movement. Uh, And I know it's going to make a lot of people um, a little anxious to hear that, but there are places in the world where you have indigenous grasses where grass-fed is indeed best, right? Australian grass-fed beef is, you know, world-renowned. If you go out to the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming, there's grasses that have been growing there since before Columbus and before the Native Americans ever migrated to this continent. But here on the East Coast, that's not what we have. And so, so many farmers, when they heard that grass-fed is what consumers wanted, they go, holy cow, this is awesome. I don't have to buy any feed. And instead, what they did is they put their animals on fescue pastures that have almost no nutritional value and basically stunted their growth and starved the animals. And it's why you go to a farmer's market. And if you, not always, 
But many times you find the grass-fed beef is super tough and tastes a little bit like you're licking dirt. It's because they haven't had those sweet grasses. If they were eating the grasses out in the Dakotas, it would be different. If they were eating the grasses down in Argentina, it would be different. But if you're in, you know, hot, you know, countryside in North Carolina or Florida or or even Virginia, uh, probably not so great for creating nice, healthy animals. And it's why animal welfare and nutrition comes first, and the and the grass fed portion comes second. Th- thank you so much for saying that. I mean, I can't even. You know, it's a podcast, so it's hard. You can't, like, really accurately express, like, you know, with your facial expressions and whatnot. But, I mean, I really just started to, like, sweat a little bit when you were talking about that because it's just – it warms my heart and it it brings me great joy in – that's why um, I wanted to do this podcast because we create – everybody that comes on this show, it's essentially small business in the grand scheme of things. And – there's so many realities to what we all do, but it's not always a part of the narrative. You know, you hear things like organic and biodynamic and grass-fed and pasture-raised and cage-free. And, and, and I understand from the consumer standpoint that you want to do the right thing. You want to put better things in your body. And so by choosing those things, good on you. But I'm grateful that through this podcast, we're able to talk about what those things actually mean. What does it mean to be a shepherd? What does it mean to grow wine 15 feet above sea level here in coastal Virginia? What is that like? What does that mean? Right. And so thank you for sharing that because that's not an easy thing to say. Well, and, and I think, again, there's a corollary between what you do in your vineyard and what we do on our farm. Yes. Right. You have to figure out which varieties of grapes right. are going to do well here. Right. You don't just pick what is particularly marketable and say, I'm going to force these things to grow here no matter what. Okay. When I say, when I say, uh, cab, what grape do you think of? Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Right. And so most people in the U S when you say red wine, they might, a lot of people go right to Cabernet. They just say it either they've had it or they know that word. Um, of course we would want to have a large supply of Cabernet from like the business side, you know, but it doesn't partic- grow particularly well here, at least in our experience. We wanted to have Malbec here. Matthew, you know. Yes. <laughs> he loves him some Malbec. And that Argentinian Malbec it's that he makes so good. is fabulous. But it just didn't take here. So there are certain grapes that do thrive here, Petit Verdot, Cabernet Franc, Albarino. Um but yeah, you have to you have to listen to the land, and I think if you actually hear what Craig said and didn't just say, you know, it's a soundbite. We live in a soundbite world. That the worst place to buy is at, for me, anyways, is the East Coast Farmers Market. If you listen to him, his why for that was that the life and the welfare of the animal is paramount. Yes. Well, it's just like. You're never going to have a polar bear farm here in Virginia. And yet, for some reason, um, there are people, and, and I'm of Scottish heritage and proud of it. One of the most beautiful... You do rock a kilt like nobody's business. Thank you. You do. It's all, all about the legs. It is. You have nice legs. So you said you started cycling. <laughs> so, but, there, but there are people here in 
Virginia and North Carolina raising highland cattle, right? Which are these beautiful but exceptionally hairy animals that when it when it hits 85 degrees, they're looking for a place to die. Um, that's that's not that's not embracing who you are and where and where we are. Yeah. Um, and and so you know, vineyards in Virginia have figured out where we are and what works, and have done. A fabulous job embracing that, which wasn't always the case, yep, right? I agree, hundred percent. Okay, yep. and it's kind of the same thing now with with livestock. We got to figure out where we are. There's a reason why, for the past hundred and fifty years, we've been a cow calf operation and haven't raised beef to be finished and butchered and and sold in grocery stores here. That it all goes out west. Now, it's not that you can't. It's just that you have to do something different, yep. and and it's going to be expensive, right? It's 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 not going to be it's not going to be easy, and so, so you know having an appreciation for what local means means is really important, and the consumer has to be as cognizant about where they are, yes, and that just buying buying meat or produce because it happens to be within a certain mile radius isn't going to make it good. Absolutely. Um, Craig, I mean, that's our industry. Like we talked about this at the beginning. You mentioned that you tried a lot of new wines at the Somme camp event. I mean, there's the winery was founded. There was 14 wineries. Now there's over, you know, 300. Um, The average case production, you know, is around that 2,500 to 3,000 cases. If you take all of the cases that are made in the state and combine it, I think Chateau St. Michel makes that just in Riesling, you know? Um, But that doesn't make it better or worse. It just makes it different. But the realities of that are vintage variation, are smaller production, are limited distribution and limited availability. Um, That doesn't mean we should just accept that as the way it's always going to be. Sure, we should seek out more vineyard space and plant more grapes. But there are certain realities to growing wine in the Commonwealth here in Virginia that are different from what they are at, say, Washington State and California. And that's just – it's just important to talk about why. It doesn't make it better or worse. It's just different. It's to ha- it's, you have to have different expectations for when you buy wine here and you buy wine outs. And I'm not saying difference in terms of quality expectation because the wine here is incredible. But you're talking about the prices, the varieties, and the availabilities, availability of it. Well, and I'm not the most enlightened individual. It's taken me a while to figure out – that you embrace what's local um, to what you do well in that area. And also that everyone should drink what they like and eat what they like. So it's taken me 59 years before I brought a bottle of muscadine into my home because I have friends that that's what they want. It doesn't matter that that's not what I want. Right. Okay. That's what they want. And that's what hospitality is about. Is yes. I want to provide for, for my guests. So I have wines in, uh, in my home now that five years ago, um, you know, I looked down upon and, you know, just couldn't figure out why anyone would waste time and energy you know, making it, never mind drinking it, but it's what people like. It is. It's amazing. Like we, we talked about this on a previous episode where, 
you know, when I first started in the wine industry, there's this, you know, and I love, I love this industry, obviously, like I left everything to pursue a career in it. Um, but there's a lot of like pretense with wine, you know, there's, there's an intimidation factor with wine too. And I think that's sort of changing with this new cultural shift in wine and it being more approachable and it being presented differently and alternative packaging and new grapes and new styles. But one of the things that I always did in the beginning is I always wanted to make sure that I wasn't associated with liking a certain wine. Because if you liked Chamberson, for example. Yes. Oh, he likes Chamberson. So what does that say about him? And then as you learn and you taste more, you're like, well, one, you care less what other people think about you. But the more you try grapes like Chamberson and give them a chance and realize it's probably you, not them, there's some damn good wines being made from Chamberson. And we actually made a rosé with Chamberson and put it in the can, for goodness sakes. But, like, being open-minded and trying new grapes and drinking what you like is ultimately what it's all about. And I think, uh, uh, you know, it's muscadine. Like, what is it? I wouldn't drink it now. Maybe someday I will. Just try it. Someone offers it. Give it a whirl. Or pour it over It has alcohol in it, right? That's the worst, the worst thing, you know? <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I think being open-minded and trying new things. And, you know, th- this has been an amazing conversation, and I, I I, wish it could just keep going. And But, you know, is there any, any closing words, anything you want to leave? You know, hopefully you can come back on future episodes. But, is, you know, is there anybody you want to thank? Is there anything you want to mention before you hop off? Well, I, first of all, I have so many friends in in this business, and it's a little hard for me to even prioritize who's who's been important. But I'll tell you, one of the associations that's been so incredibly important has been the Virginia Wine Board and Annette Boyd. What she has done to be able to essentially raise all boats. Um, it's been amazing to me in ten years to see nationally what the level of respect is for Virginia wine across the board um and to have been a small part of the association with so many wineries boxwood barbersville uh early mountain um and certainly the williamsburg winery has been one of my one of my best friends and we've done so many great things and i think what i've also enjoyed about the association with the williamsburg winery is you all are our community partners. I, I've never been to an event where you didn't share the value of other wineries. There's not this sense of competition right. and so on. And, um, and, and that's just been grand, but for me, it's all about the chefs. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the ones who help direct me as to what my farming was going to be like. Um, the product that I would ultimately produce and um you know it's just there's such an invigorating community i i i I just i I love my chefs i love the loyalty that um that they that they show ultimately though a chef's loyalty to any farmer is all dependent upon the consumer enjoying what they produce so um Gosh, I hope everybody goes out and has has a lamb dinner tonight. Yeah, challenge <laughs> challenge after this meal is after this podcast is to one try to not be hungry, but yeah, go out and uh, open a bottle of Virginia wine and and try some lamb, preferably Border Springs. Yeah, and that pe- <laughs> petite Verdot. Although yeah. 
I've never complained about having the adagio with a lamb <laughs> dinner either. We just, yeah. Hey, talking about realities, we just ran out of one of our favorite vintages. So, oh my gosh, yeah, that's, that's how it goes. But a uh, couple months away from the release of the 17. But um, thank you, Craig. I love you. Thank you for always supporting me and supporting the Williamsburg Winery and for uh, bringing so many uh, creative and passionate uh, and inspired people into my life and into our life. And uh, there's nothing else I can say besides thank you. And I appreciate you. Well, and I appreciate the adage that you coined that I now live by, ride, dine, and imbibe. Yeah. <laughs> and so I hope we'll have many chances to do that in All the right. future, Michael. Cheers. Cheers, my friend. And Jeff, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> As we typically do, when we say the show is over, we keep on talking anyway. And thankfully, Jeff keeps on recording. So Craig and I had a really interesting discussion about the Virginia Wine Marketing Office and how Craig has seen our industry evolve over the last few years, uh, not just the marketing, but the quality of the wine. So hope you enjoy this nice little bonus feature. So you talked about Virginia Wine, and you talked about the Virginia Wine uh, Marketing Board and, and Annette, and you know, obviously I have a tremendous deal of respect for her. Uh, on a personal level, on a professional level, she's done so much to su- in support of me and also the Williamsburg Winery. And um, what has been your impressions uh, of the industry over the last few years, ever since you've you know been involved? Well, I don't think it's a mystery that you know a decade or so ago, Virginia wine was not considered to be um, approaching California standards. Um, And that there was an awful lot of wine that was in Virginia being produced that was considered of pretty low quality. Right. Um, And I think a decade ago, it was hard for the very best of Virginia wineries uh, to get recognition. Uh, They're typically much smaller. Yep. Um, Not all the wineries are... You know, on an interstate access, you had right. to really search them out. And even um, if they were good, they were fighting against that stereotype. And yeah, yeah, and distribution was not that that broad. And I think she's just brought incredible exposure um, to the very best that Virginia has to offer. And the very best Virginia has to offer is absolutely on par with wines throughout the world. One of the most exciting events I ever went to was um, a symposium that she held at the Salamander Hotel. And and a room full of, I guess, 300 individuals doing blind tasting of various varietals. And there would be a Virginia wine paired with what's considered to be um, the standard for yep. for for the best wines of the world, going up against French wines and California wines, and and it was amazing that when you're doing the blind tasting, almost always the Virginia wine was outshining the world standard, and the worst case scenario is that it was a split. Jury, sure. Um, with 300, 300 people, I mean, they just hold up. They do. Um, it's it, and 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 here's another example. Um, Rachel Martin from Boxwood creates her own label with California. It's wines. incredible, Oceano. Oceano, and because of her now association with California, she just wins 
white wine of the year for her Oceano Chardonnay um, out the San Francisco wine. Her Expo. second vintage, no less. Second vintage. 2017. And she's doing exactly what she was doing here in Virginia. You can't tell me that there was a little bit of a bias about Virginia that you're not getting the same sort of recognition. Yeah. And, and I think what the Virginia Wine Marketing Board has done has been phenomenal. Um, fortunately, I travel the country and, and I certainly see plenty of psalms and, and, and chefs whose appreciation for Virginia wine has just skyrocketed. In a decade, it's amazing what has happened. And it's, it creates great pride for me. Um, not only that, I just enjoy these, I enjoy these wines. They're incredibly food-friendly. Like, you ask a lot of people, what's, the, what's your favorite thing about Virginia wine? And, you know, it's, you know, it tastes good, obviously. But they, they're just incredibly food-friendly. They, they tend to lean on the, if you look at the world spectrum in the mid-range and in terms of alcohol and in tannin, um, uh, they're very well balanced and they grow, they're just very food friendly. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about the new direction of the Virginia wine marketing and the branding that they unveiled about a year ago now is I love the comparisons. And you mentioned the, the blind tastings. I think blind tastings is obviously one of the best ways to remove bias. Right, because right? we are influenced by labels and, and producer. If I told you that this wine is from uh, Lafitte Rothschild, you would expect it to be great, right? Um, but I think one of the things that I think is our ace card, and Taylor Dameron from Upper Shirley Vineyards, who was on a previous episode, talked about this by, by bringing people here and letting them experience it. It's I love that we're doubling down on our Virginianess. Yes, like we're not California, we're not Oregon or Washington or France. We are Virginia, and that's awesome. And let's 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 expose what makes us Virginia. What does that mean? What is our landscape like? What is what is the experience like here? What conditions do the grapes grow? What type of people are growing the grapes? And I and I in, in less comparison, more showing and revealing the exactly who we are. And that's enough. Because Taylor mentioned it before. We have almost a hundred percent success rate when you bring the Psalms and you bring the travel writers here. And they're like, whoa, right. this is Virginia? Right. I mean, look at where your, your farm is in comparison to where you are here today. The landscape is so different. I was just on the eastern shore. That's Virginia. Right. You were in the foothills with the early mountain. That's Virginia. Yeah. And showing the diversity of our terroir and the people and the place is our ace card. Well, the diversity of Virginia is certainly a virtue. Absolutely. Um, and, and therefore, we have a wide range of, of styles and of, of, of grapes. Um, it's, 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 it's exciting. It's like going to a wine amusement park, just taking a little tour through central Virginia and make your way down here to the, to the eastern, eastern shore. And you'll, you'll not only see it in the landscape, but you'll taste it. In, in the wines. I, I, I hope everybody takes some time and and does a tour of of Virginia wineries. It's, Absolutely. They're not only beautiful, um, but so fabulous. Absolutely. And, and I don't know how you could possibly do that and not come and back with your backseat loaded and with then the cases next, of wine. <laughs> exactly. And then you're, the next time you're at a restaurant list and you see that wine from Virginia there, you have the imagery in your mind. 
And that's what influences your buying decision. Well, and and let's make sure, too, that the consumer understands that, you know, it's a little unfair, the local VOR movement, how how there's so much passion for local tomatoes and lettuce, and yet for local grapes, there's not that same same sort of. Sort I, of passion. I think I've said it on every episode. The local, the local war restaurants. That, I mean, for goodness sakes, like the salt is local. You know what I mean? The the beverage menus, local spirits and local beer. And I love craft beer. We this we've had two or three craft breweries on this podcast. But where are the ingredients coming from that they use in their beer? Are they coming from Virginia? Not many, no. But it's all over the local menus, as it should be, because it was made here in Virginia, and they're phenomenal. Love what's happening in the Virginia craft beer industry. But for goodness sakes, the wine lists—if you find two or three Virginia wines—I mean, they're made from grapes that are grown in the ground, just like. <laughs> That's right, I mean, and you have to expect to pay a little more yes. for the local, yes. right? Economy yeah. of scale. Virginia wineries are not a gallo. No, they're not. Um, and so it is going to cost a little bit more. And, you know, and one of the reasons that people shop at Farmer's Market is because they feel like they're making a difference, right? They're supporting a local farmer. And and aside from the fact they think it might be better, you know, I'm sorry. Tomatoes are tomatoes. Um, <laughs> I love a fresh tomato grown in my own garden. Um, and certainly better than commodity tomatoes but again not a whole lot of difference you're paying extra um because you think you're doing doing some community good and you are you are but the same thing has to be held true for for the estates that are growing their own own grapes and not buying them from california or or elsewhere just Um, yeah, yeah, like let's just be real about it. I mean, I think we're talking specifically about the restaurants that are local or inspired. I, I would just love to see more on the wine list, and I think it's happening. And there's some amazing restaurants. Um, you know, one that really comes to my mind is Commune uh, in Virginia Beach in Norfolk. Now, like there's one hundred percent Virginia, right? Wine list, beer list. The food is all local slash regional. Full disclosure sourcing. And I just think that's walking the the walk, right? Because um, locavore, farm to table, farm to fork—that is sexy as hell. It but is. if you're not putting the the wine made from grapes grown in the ground in here in Virginia, you just got to be real about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have a question for Jeff. Are you a lamb lover? Yes. What's your What's your favorite cut? Uh, <laughs> it's like asking him what his, his favorite I, bottle of wine is. I don't know it that well to tell you. But so, I, probably a rack of lamb, a loin chop. Yeah. Yeah. I like the. Uh, did I have a lamb cheek ravioli one time? Oh my gosh, we that did. We did. Yeah. It takes a lot of cheeks to make that ravioli. <laughs> yeah. It does. But one of the things, um, again, that I wish more barbecue places Mm. would do is just lamb barbecue it's so fabulous a shoulder right Mm. same as a boston butt uh and if you have a smoker at home you find a shoulder 
smoke that low and slow mm. until it just falls off off the bone. Shred it. Put it um, in a taco. Exactly. Mm. Or even make a sloppy shepherd out of it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's fabulous. Um, Two more glasses and you'll be a sloppy shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Elliot Moss down in Nashville um, has a very famous barbecue place called Buxton Hall. Mm. And probably one of the most proud moments for me is he actually has a picture of lamb, of my lamb, on the cover of his cookbook. So mm. for a barbecue guy that's... You know, the barbecue world is pretty pork-centric. To put lamb on it was like winning the gold medal at the Olympics. Yeah, uh, that, was, that was fabulous. But everyone, hopefully, the lesson is lamb is so accessible. Um, you don't even need a lot of seasoning. Just yep. put it on a smoker. Lamb takes smoke so well. Just get That's you a meat thermometer, right? That's I'm, the big thing. Perfect. Yep, lesson learned.